First Timothy chapter 3 is the section of the Bible we're going to look at this morning. First Timothy 3. I'm going to start in the first verse of First Timothy chapter 3, and we are going to read down just seven verses this morning. Seven verses. These seven verses in 1 Timothy chapter 3 continue the theme of what we have looked at and seen all the way through this letter so far, and that is that an aging Paul writing to a younger pastor who is feeling some anxiety, some fears, some difficulty in trying to shepherd and care for a church, he is giving some instructions. And a lot of the instructions are about putting things back in order. That's why we've called this, this book or the way that we're thinking about this letter, Order in the House. In this chapter, in the third chapter, Paul's going to call the church the household of God, and then he's gone through a number of areas to say, let's make sure we line these things up rightly. Now, as we start the third chapter, we are going to consider and think about leadership, and I want to tread carefully here. I want to tread carefully here because each and every time I'm given an opportunity to consider or to read through this or to teach something like this, I recognize that in a lot of ways, I am talking about myself. And I feel nearly all the time, I was talking to my kids about this, about what it means to be a mom and dad and all the ways that we're going to tell them things and then they're going to notice over the years that we don't live up to that accordingly, perfectly. And I tell them, well, you know, here's the thing, you can always out-parent what you can live. And that's just how it works. And I borrowed that phrase from the idea that anyone who's ever taught, especially as it comes to Scripture, I feel, as I'm going to 1 Timothy chapter 3 this morning, it seems like I can always out-teach what I'm able to live because I feel deeply my own weakness, my own sin, my own frailty, my own insecurities, the ways that I've failed in this. And so I just want to remind you at the outset, if there's ever been a section of the Bible where we need to remember and to trust that it's God's word that's going to carry us along, that he is the chief shepherd, let's let it be this one. Because I'm going to read from 1 Timothy chapter 3, and there is extremely direct and clear instructions for what ordered leadership in a church should look like. And of course, we do our best to, to live up to these things. And by do our best, meaning we cast ourselves as, as deeply as we can upon the grace of Jesus, but we, we want to consider these things. However, I would ask, and what I pray, and what I long for, is that our confidence would not be in any one human being or in any one group of human beings' ability to lead in any one particular way, but to remember that God has given us hope for a future where we have a perfect leader in, in Jesus. So I hope that's clear. And maybe all that's clear right now is you think, wow, this guy with the microphone's really insecure. And maybe that's okay too. You're following along at least. Let's read 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, and I'm going to read seven verses. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Let's pause there for a moment and pray. God, thank you for Scripture. We thank you for these words. We ask, God, that you would care for your church by multiplying influence and leadership like this. We pray, God, that you would Deliver us from the tempting trap of placing giftedness or effectiveness or charisma at the top of our desire list for leadership. 
I pray that as we consider these words that you would move in our midst. We pray, Spirit of God, give us eyes to see. Unstop our ears. And then, God, we pray for hearts that would be softened and attentive so that we could learn and grow. I pray, God, especially where the claims of 1 Timothy chapter 3, where they land on all of us as followers of Jesus, God, we pray that you would align our lives to most bring you glory, to give us the most joy, the most delight and fulfillment in being who you've designed us to be. We ask for this. Please move in us, Spirit of God. In Jesus' name, amen. There's a lot of of crises in the world, and I don't know if it's brought on by a constant sharing of crisis by all of our friends over every form of media possible, or I don't know if it's just the reality that more and more for-profit news outlets have realized that tragedy sells far better than the mundane. No news station ever leads with, trash got picked up again this week. Major street going on in Tallahassee. But there's just a lot of crisis in the world. And what I would want to throw into the mix, maybe not as a hot take, but as an observation, and I think that there are many, many social studies that would back this up. Perhaps one of the biggest crises of our day and age is that in the midst of a world that's going mad and sideways and up and down, there has been a consistent and growing erosion of trust in leadership. That the suspicion that is not only warranted sometimes, but I believe that a kind of suspicion about any kind of leadership or influence is actually seen to be part and parcel to normal human life nowadays. That all of us, if we would be wise, we should have a side eye looking around, that all of us should assume or should wonder what the agenda is, what kind of punches are being pulled, because leadership has increasingly been something that for a lot of people has been difficult to trust. Now, I'm not sure if this falls into the kind of chronological snobbery that comes with our day and age Everyone thinks things are worse or bigger or more in their day and age. You know, back in the day, everyone just trusted leaders all the time. And I'm sure that countless civilizations would want to object to that. Maybe that's the case. Maybe it's just the reality that all of us realize that with leadership, that word in general, with the idea of any kind of authority or power, that there's the possibility for corruption. Scripture seems to recognize this. In fact, the Bible knows more than any other book that I've ever read about the reality of sin. It has a robust view of sin. So maybe every civilization, and ours included, and maybe I'm just growing up and paying attention more, maybe I'm feeling it in my own bones, but the reality is is that it can be often difficult to trust and to entrust oneself to a kind of leadership or influence. It can be a difficult thing. I was trying to think back to the ways that the concept of leadership was even introduced to me. And one thing that I I noticed or I thought about was my father's work experience. My dad worked for a state-run mill and elevator, uh, loading flour into massive train cars to be shipped off to make all of your bread and baked items. He was a part of a union, so he was a union mill worker for the entirety of my childhood growing up. And if you wanted to see my dad cast aspersions, uh, I don't think he's ever said those words in his whole life. You know how in the Psalms, sometimes in the middle of wonderful, lovely Psalms, there's just these curses that rain down? If you just mentioned the word boss, or the man, or management, in the presence of my dad and his buddies about work, and an imprecatory psalm would rain down out of nowhere with all the creativity that is found in the psalms as well. And I thought to myself how interesting that was. 
When I grew up, it was just installed in me that there was an entire group of good people and normal people, and then there were leaders who really just wanted to put you down. Now, again, this is not a commentary on the mill system for the entire state of North Dakota. That's not what you came here for. It's like a college thing. If you're here for that class, you're in the wrong, you're in the wrong room. There were times, of course, where they should have been, and they were treated poorly. But I'm just thinking about the way that it came to be, the way that it was even discussed, the concept of leadership. One time specifically, we had a really good family friend who'd worked with my dad for a number of times, and I knew that we were really good family friends because we visited their home, and they had kids, and I remember going out there and thinking, like, this is amazing. Like, we have, we're, we're like making friends, just a social family, look at us. And it was a joyful time, a wonderful time. We shared meals together. I thought we might get to know them. And that would have been the case, I believe, until this particular friend's office took a management job at the mill. And I remember having conversations confused in later elementary school with my dad, being like, well, why don't we ever talk to so-and-so? I'm like, I'm like protecting identities. Like, you guys are you're just ready Let's keep protecting them. Like, what, what happened to so-and-so? Remember, we used to, you guys went to go to lunch, and our whole family went over that kind of stuff. And in, in a moment, I could tell that something had changed in this relationship. And what finally came out, what had changed in this relationship, is that this particular friend of my dad's had, he had crossed over to the dark side. He had taken a job with management with management of all people in all places. And so I don't know this little story from my childhood of me trying to think about where do we learn about leadership and how do these things go? I guess I would just ask you, when you think about the word leadership and ordered leadership, even as it is according to Scripture, what do you feel and what do you think? Because for a lot of us, We may need to strain to find really good examples. It's not a common thing. I think it's not a common thing for a number of reasons. One I already mentioned, Scripture tells us, has the most plain view, and we've experienced it in our own lives, that sin is a real thing. And it affects the fallenness of the world, and the reality of sin affects everyone no matter their position. More than that, we recognize the principle that power and influence can often corrupt or can often bring out opportunity for sin in a way that otherwise it would have laid dormant. So you've heard the phrase, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts, absolutely. So in the midst of, here's the question, in the midst of the reality that so many of us are thinking about and maybe could think to ourselves, yeah, how have we viewed leadership and where do we get these concepts and do I trust it? And how could we trust it, knowing that sin is a real thing? We turn to Scripture and we say, well, what is God going to do about this conundrum of the reality that is so far as I can tell, apart from the spiritual aspects of leadership in life, like the Holy Spirit, who does give instruction in leadership, in a world where all we have is sinners, that means that all the people are going to oftentimes have sin, What does God do with leadership? That's the question. What does he do with leadership? And it should be noted right at the outset that this statement in the first verse of 1 Timothy chapter 3 is, I believe, or could be surprising for those of us who have been burned, for those of us who have learned that suspicion and self-protection is the way to get by in the world, especially as a result to those who are in authority over us. It could be seen as a surprising statement. Because the same Bible that has a majorly robust view of sin and understands the realities of the way that power, the way that influence, the way that money can cause problems in the world, that same scripture that I believe is the most robust when it comes to those views of sin also speaks glowingly and with words like noble about the reality that leadership and influence and serving a group of people is still 
something to be desired, something to even be aspired to. And this is where I take the, the first conviction, and that is to just say this. If ordered leadership is what's being discussed in the third chapter of 1 Timothy chapter 3, then I would want to say at the outset that one of the first statements that we should make is that we believe in leadership. We believe in healthy responsibility. We believe in accountable leadership, but we believe in one's time, efforts, gifts, influence being leveraged for a greater good within a group of people. Scripture is not anarchist in nature. Though we have equal dignity in the image of God and though we come to Christ and ultimately will bow to Him universally, it does not mean that God's plan for the church, even that it exists in the world, is to be leadership-less. In some way and in somehow, God has preserved His people down through the ages, even in the midst of sin, with the noble desire for people, in this case, we believe that this role of, of elder overseers is described, that it is a noble thing for men to aspire to. And see, that's the thing about leadership. Though we understand all the perils of potential sin therein, we also can all imagine and perhaps have even felt the times when we really were the recipient of good leadership, where we thought, man, no, this was a gift. I can think of this person who used their kindness, their thoughtfulness, their sensitivity, their vision, their energy to leverage an organization or a group of people forward in a good way. And so it's perhaps the invitation of 1 Timothy chapter 3 to imagine that kind of leadership, that if God has given his gospel to a group of people like us, who aren't all that impressive, then it must be his design to preserve it somehow. And one of the ways that he preserves the gospel in the church down through the ages is through leadership. There are people assigned by the Spirit of God to particular tasks. So we believe in leadership, and it seems as though God does as well. Now, a couple of things. I'm going to describe not only the, the words for leader, but then I'm going to give a couple of descriptions of what these leaders are supposed to be doing, and then we're going to look down through the qualifications or the list of the kind of people that a church is supposed to be working for, or looking for. What kind of man is supposed to be stepping into these roles? A couple of things from the outset. If you're looking in the Bible and you're saying, okay, if you're telling me the church is supposed to have leadership and God believes in it, then what are we looking for? Well, in this particular verse, it says this word, overseer. This word in Greek is the word for, is the word episkopos. And down through the ages, churches have tried to figure out what is the best label to put on or the best organization for setting up leadership in the church. And maybe even in these words already, because you're paying attention closely, you're starting to hear some things that would tip you off as the way that churches have organized themselves. This word for overseer here in 1 Timothy 3.1 is episkopos. Maybe you can hear in that word episcopal. Some people have used the word bishop coming from this particular phrase, that word overseer. There is also another word that's often used interchangeably, I'm going to make that argument this morning, that's used interchangeably in Scripture for the same kind of concept, and that is the word elder, which in Greek is presbyteros. And some of you are perking up a little bit more, you've been paying attention to church history, either that or you just walk down the street, you look at church signs. There are Episcopal understandings, which comes from bishop or overseer, and there are, of course, Presbyterian models of church leadership and government, and that is taken from this word that the Bible often gives interchangeably for the same concept, and that is elder. There's another dominant word that is given for the same kind of task, and so not only do we as a church believe that Scripture commends leadership, so we believe in leadership, but we believe that there is more or less one office being described here by a bunch of different words, at least three, overseer, elder, and then the other word that's going to be used consistently throughout the Bible, not here specifically in 1 Timothy 3, but in many other places that Paul mentions this task and this role, and that is the word for shepherd, poimen. And the task that shepherds do, poimeno, is to shepherd, and it's the word that we get for 
pastor. So, bishop, elder, or presbyter, and pastor, we believe that Scripture uses interchangeably to describe this one office, this one role, this one noble aspiration, to use your influence and time and God's gifts given by the Spirit in order to bless the church. Now, not only do do we believe in leadership, but these concepts, we believe, are used interchangeably, and then there's some descriptions for what this kind of person does. The first comes from the name of overseer. He says then in verse 2 again, the overseer, and this, of course, describes one of the things that an elder is to do. They are to look over or to manage much of what's happening in the midst of a church. This phrase or this idea that someone needs to take responsibility for, or at least to look into and care for, this idea of managing with some rule but not with bare authority is the idea given here. I'm going to read another section of Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 28. You'll see this same phrase, and you'll see some of the ways that these words are interchanged to describe what this person is to do. Here's Acts chapter 20, starting in verse 28. It says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, well, there's shepherding language, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. There's episkopos, there's that word. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. And he goes on with pastoring or shepherding language to say this in verse 29 and 30. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Here in Acts chapter 20, leaving the church in Ephesus, Paul is telling them, here's what needs this should look like. Here's what leadership's going to look like. You're going to have people in place who will be overseers. They're going to do a lot of functions that seem like shepherding, so they'll be pastoring the people among you. And then he describes some of the reasons why. One of the reasons that there is leadership in the church is because there is a message to be guarded. There's a doctrine to be protected. There will people, be people who come in speaking twisted things. Not only people who will come in among you, in verse 29, all of us understand that instinct. I believe that the more sectarian among us, those who grew up maybe in a church dynamic that very much trusted ourselves and distrusted everyone out there, verse 29 is from you. You may have heard, yes, we need leaders because it's the world out there is going to try to corrupt us in here. But Paul says, no, we need shepherding for more than just that. In verse 30, he goes on and he says, from among your own selves will arise men twisting, speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. In other words, we can't protect ourselves by building a massive barrier to the outside influence. He says, no, we need leadership in the church because even in, the, in our own midst, we are twisted enough in here that we'll get things mixed up. So this task that an overseer or a elder or an elder or a shepherd does looks a lot like what a shepherd would do with a flock. That's the words used in Acts chapter 20. 1 Peter chapter 5, here's Peter writing in very similar language about the reality that Scripture gives this role. Leadership's not punted on in the Bible, even though a lot of the leaders... I mean, every leader save Jesus fails in the Bible, but God doesn't punt on leadership. That should teach us something. And here's Peter, another voice, early apostle, who also failed himself. He says this in the beginning of chapter 5 in 1 Peter. So I exhort the elders among you. There's presbyteros. There's that older guy term, probably borrowed from Jewish tradition. The Greeks likely had overseers, more like episkopos kind of people. He says, I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So Peter has just used the word elder, and he's a fellow elder. There's Presbyteros. Shepherd the flock. There's the idea of pastoring or that poimen word. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, and then he goes on, exercising oversight. There's the concept of aspiring to be an overseer, all used interchangeably in the same passages. And he describes how this is supposed to happen. Exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. 
not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. These words or titles or office have been described in church history differently. We do not hate or put down or think people are insane if they use different words for these. In fact, it's, uh, it's often a, a pleasant or a fun, a fun thing when I meet Christians of different places or from around the world or sometimes even from different traditions in our own town to ask them, what do people call you? Have you ever bumped into an awkward situation like that? Sometimes I can tell when people meet me and they don't know exactly what to say. I have a lot of extended family on my wife's side that are Catholic, and I can tell sometimes they come very close to calling me father, and then they think it's weird because I'm so young and I'm an in-law, so they usually just call me Yankee instead or something like that. So we're not saying that what other traditions have called these things are wrong or different. We just have to make a decision. Well, what are we going to say? What's the language that we use? And at our church, we have used the word elder to describe this function, this title, this office for these tasks that could not have been me, I don't think. Could it have been? There's just two small little batteries in this thing. All right. Stephen didn't run out here, so we're probably fine. Stephen didn't run out here? Is he back there? Hope he's not electrocuted or something. <laughs> All right. So the way that we describe this, we use the word elder. And if you go on our website, each and every year, in fact, we have a list of elders that are affirmed by the congregation, by the members of the church, to take on this particular role, to exercise oversight, to guard the doctrine of the church, to consider the care and shepherding of the flock that is in our midst. We call them elders. Now, some of those elders also have it as their, their job. It's their nine to five. It's their day. They've been set apart, generally speaking, set apart because of time or because of sense of calling or because of particular areas of giftedness. And some of those elders, as a subset, we call pastors. That's common language amongst us, but we see this as one role. There's not a, there's not a difference of necessarily like degree of dignity or something like that. We all serve together as elders, and some of us, when we're put in a staff position and do this for a livelihood, we call pastors. So if you've been curious about that, that's the way that it functions here. A couple other things then, you may ask the question, well, who? Who, are, who is that group of people? A couple of things on that just for a moment. One, we believe the teaching of Scripture is consistent it's been nearly a month now, I think at least, until we, or since we talked about the end of chapter 2. We leave not only because of Paul's continued thought from the end of chapter 2, but also by example through the New Testament and all of uh, the Old Testament as well, that this particular role, this one office, this one role of influence for guarding the doctrine of the, chi- uh, of the church and for exercising oversight as a shepherd with a flock, that that is reserved for Uh, for men, that this is a male role. Men and women, both designed and given the, the dignity of God and stamped with His image, not because of competence or merit, but for whatever reason, because of the distinctions made between genders and the way that God designed us, we believe that the example given in Scripture is this is for men. And so at our church, this role that we use to describe one function is is a male position. Second, a way of guarding this particular role. We believe in what we call a plurality. Now, one interesting thing about the way the Bible describes this, uh, there's another example where Paul is instructing Titus, and he says, when I left, remember, I told you to do one thing, the one thing I I told you to do, to put what was remaining in order, and then he says, to put what was remaining in order to appoint elders. Now, there's our concept of leadership being put in place, but then also that nearly every single instance that the concept of eldering is mentioned in the New Testament, it is plural. And I believe that God is wise and good for including such a thing. 
Remember how I said earlier that the Bible knows full well the tendency of sin in nearly, in every, I was going to say in nearly every single person. Save Jesus, every single person. Sin is a real thing. So, one of the gifts, or one of the ways that accountability can take place in this particular thing, is that we do not believe in setting apart one person and having them up on a a pedestal so that they can say, I heard from God, now everyone do what I say. We believe that when and how God leads is through a plurality, a group of godly men serving in this role. That means that I have pastors at our church. And I should, amongst all of us, feel my need for that kind of pastoring. It means that decisions are made many, many times by us discussing and coming to a consensus rather than one person ramrodding a vision through. That means that in small things and big things alike, any one person that serves on this particular team can be outvoted. I believe this is a protection that is put in by God for good reasons. Did we have a disaster? Sorry, I'm too curious. So, we believe in leadership. We believe that there, is, there are many words given to one basic task. We believe that the people that should be is, uh, is a, a plurality of men. And then finally, to look down through 1 Timothy chapter 3, another protection or another thing that should make us stop and think is that all of us, and I'll just say this definitively, all of us should recoil against terrible leadership. We've been designed by a Father who is perfect, by a God who's going to rule perfectly, and I believe there's something inside of us that all should say, when power is abused, when oversight is given under compulsion in a domineering fashion, when oversight is le- is, or leadership is given for shameful gain, all of us should say, that is terrible, I don't want that. And so, God has put into place not only a pr- plurality of men, but a plurality of godly men. We are not to trust anyone who self-identifies and just says, well, I want to be a leader around here, follow me. In fact, that usually is an indicator that that person should never be a leader around here. And so here is a a list, an illustration, some of the things that we should be looking for, hoping for, praying for, that God would give us in the leaders that he puts in our charge. These have been helpful headings, and I'm going to use these to describe what some of these are. First, Paul says, this person should be above reproach. Now, I do not believe this means sinless or perfectly above accusation. Plenty of crazy accusations can be made at any given time. But I believe that as a general principle, an overseer should not be the kind of person who has constantly swirling around them an aura of scandal. And that we should live in such a way as to think to ourselves, God, please keep me from living a kind of life that would cause people to give undue speculation or question to the faithfulness either of the message or of our church. Many people have noted that this idea of above reproach perhaps is a heading or a title over all of the rest of the things. I think that's a fair way to look at it. He says this, an overseer, an overseer, someone who aspires to this, must be the husband of one wife. I think this could be described as a general heading of fidelity in marriage. Or perhaps even better than that, the way the Greek reads, a one-woman man. This describes a kind of chastity, a kind of covenant-keeping that means that those who would be in charge of the people of God must take into account God's instruction concerning marriage and have self-control and commitment and faithfulness, especially in areas of their sexuality and commitments romantically. Now, some people have brought up and said, well, does this mean that only married people can be elders, because it says they have to be the husband of one wife. Does this mean that only married people can be elders? I don't believe that's what it means. I believe that you can be a singular-minded, self-controlled, chaste man without being married. I also would be hesitant to put the rule in place that they must have been married or currently married, because that would, of course, exclude the Apostle Paul and Jesus himself from leadership in our church. That seems like a bad policy, if that's the case. 
Now, there are many questions, and of course, these would take discernment and conversations back and forth, but the idea here is that they should be a one-woman man. This means that what we are called to imagine and pray for and commit to is a kind of leadership that does not leverage influence and power and status in order to lord it over or to abuse the opposite sex. These things need to be said directly and consistently. Yes, even in the church of God, there have been countless situations down through the ages where people have suspected too much, where people have confronted too much, and because of fear of losing status or losing charisma or losing giftedness, leadership has remained in place despite complete and utter failing in this major requirement for the kind of godly leadership that we must have. I mean... (laughs) All right. I don't know what is happening. Is it my mic? I don't think it's the mic. I think it's the rain. I think it's our power grid. I'm, should I try the handheld or should I just try this thing? You don't think it's the mic? Can you guys still hear it? All right, if it happens again, um, we're just going to pray and end the service, I guess. <laughs> I don't know what we're going to do. It's a little scary, but there's just a little battery in here. It's not like I'm going to be jolted. I shouldn't have made an electrocution joke then for if my wife ever sees this, she'll be so mad at me for joking with her. All right, so fidelity in marriage, let's just say this. We must insist on chastity, godliness, and faithfulness in romantic and sexual relationships. This is a hallmark of leadership, and it cannot ever be fudged. We have to say this and insist on it. Second is a category of things that I believe that the Apostle Paul would just put underneath the category of self-mastery. I think that's a good heading to describe what it means to be sober-minded, self-controlled, and respectable. This means that leaders should not be the kind of people who are so unstable that they are prone to fits in any one particular instance. They're not the kind of person who is prone to passions or misperceptions or jumping to conclusions. They're not the kind of person who are mastered by their desires, self-controlled, the idea of godliness that means that from our inner spirits, we let the Spirit of God control our desires at the deepest level. We are not mastered by them. Respectable, meaning that we do not use, nor do we have to resort to undignified means to accomplish our ends. But self-mastery, the idea that from our inner being, We have been given over to a kind of self-control that is so evidently a fruit of the Spirit that those who come in contact with it say, this is a kind of person who could lead others because they are not being led around by some unseen, untethered list of desires. Now, I I should mention, I think, at this point, because it's the most clear one, I do want to say to you that all of this list in 1 Timothy chapter 3 are really just things that that those of us who are following Jesus and desire to be led by his spirit should probably be growing in. So the requirements for leadership in the Bible are not some sort of superhero list that are unattainable, but rather they are simply the outward signs that the spirit of God is moving in a person to bring about Christian maturity. And all of us should be growing in self-mastery as we have the Spirit of God move in our midst. Third, a leader in this church should be hospitable. Now, hospitable should mean not only willing and generous with our things and time and lives to others, but hospitable in a Bible kind of way. The word hospitable, as it relates to Scripture, is the idea of stranger love. That's literally what the phrase means. Stranger love. Showing love toward and care toward those who are not able to pay you back. Maybe those who are not even already in your tribe. Hospitality is a mark of leadership. Again, our love for one another, our willingness to share with one another is a hallmark of the Christian life and faith. 
and so should it be a hallmark of leadership. Fourth, teaching ability. I want to note in the middle of 1 Timothy chapter 3, the interesting priority that God puts on character for leadership in His people, not necessarily gifts. You know, this is the one skill in the entire list. There's one skill, one part of the job description that needs to have demonstrated ability. I believe this ability to teach here not only includes the communication of truth, but the right handling of truth. So that in Acts chapter 20, as mentioned before, when fierce wolves come in or when people arise speaking twisted things, that the leader would be able to say, wait, I identify and I see that this doesn't seem right. How do we correct this? So that correction is given. However, couched down in the list, one skill and ability that I believe in for many, for many makes the difference and a complete and utter calling a giving oneself to and a a shown ability to communicate the gospel and to guard doctrine carefully is the one skill that sets apart this group of leaders from other faithful Christians. So apt to teach, able to teach, and I believe demonstrated so is one of the qualifications. This seems important for us being a group of people that is stewarding a message. That's kind of our whole job. We're supposed to be stewarding a message Stewarding a a good news, a view of the world that God has given us concerning himself and us and what our future may hold. So, not only faithful in marriage, not only have a self-mastery of control, not only a generosity, especially even toward uh, strangers, but able to teach. Fifth, says not a drunkard. What a wonderful way to say this. Not a drunkard. Titus Titus chapter 1, I believe, says not given to much wine. This, I believe, is one particular thing that flows from our self-mastery to be controlled over our use of substances. This does not mean, so long as you're not using alcohol, just use whatever else you want, but this is definitely an area where we are often prone to lack of self-control. Scripture says that we should not be given much to strong drink lest we forget the commands of God and so profane His name. This kind of sober-mindedness is perhaps the kind of thing that would have been required of a pilot in a cockpit. Not to be lazy of mind and given over to drunkenness. Again, not to take this list legalistically, but I would say that it's okay, especially amongst leaders, it should be a common thing for us to be asking one another and to be saying, do we have control over drink? This has often been handled in the, Christ, in the Christian church down through the ages by just saying anything fermented needs to be at least 100 feet away from you at all times. That's the, maybe that was just my church growing up. That was the rule. It's like we had, uh, we had social distancing way before COVID, except it was away from alcohol. That's the way it's been handled in many circumstances. I don't believe that's the way the Bible instructs it or says that it ought to be, but I will just say this. If you do not believe that teetotaling is a lifestyle, staying 100 feet away from anything fermented is the way that you're going to live, could I at least say that you ought to be consistently open then to a self-examination concerning the use of too much alcohol and that drunkenness is in fact a sin all throughout Scripture, that this is to be avoided, that self-control in this area is something that's required of leadership. He goes on and describes not only our use of things, but the use of our tempers. Not violent, but gentle, and not quarrelsome. The King James used to say this person should not be pugnacious, which is the old-fashioned word for a boxer, a pugilist, someone who loves to fight. Sometimes, in order to fight off fierce wolves and those speaking twisted things, it is certain that a leader in God's church needs to have courage, should have a spine, But what Paul is telling Timothy here is, watch for men who just like to argue and be right. There are some people whose tempers and inflamed anger toward things means that they have found a position of leadership simply because it is the best perch from which to judge all others. Paul says, please do not tolerate this kind of leadership. Angry-spirited 
you need to listen kind of a thing, if more and more what you're hearing from leaders or what you're experiencing in yourself is a, is a sense of just angst. Now, here's the thing. Remember we blamed the media early on in this, or I did, that tragedy sells. Here's something that I've learned and tried to be careful about through the ages. I want you to know that I've seen this in myself and a temptation in others that I've, that I've noticed. Angst sells. And it is very possible to build an organization and a group about all the things that we're against and all the stupid people who don't see what we see. And we need to be careful that what we're living in the midst of and what we're committed to as a people is not just a kind of angry angstiness. Is that even a thing? So Paul says, do not let your leadership be marked by the angry. Gentleness. Not violence, not quarrelsome. And I'm just going to say it out loud. In other words, what if leadership looked a little bit like Jesus and the way that he accomplished things in the world? That's, I think, what's being pressed forward. Additionally, and I promise only a few more. He says that leaders need to be careful about their attitudes toward money. They are not a lover of money. This moves beyond the usefulness of money or the diligence or the a perspective of money that says I'm going to work hard so that I can be generous. What this means is there's a subtle temptation for money and things and stuff to grab our hearts in a way that is to be avoided. Gain. First Peter says that they should not be leading for dishonest gain. We should watch greed in our midst. I've used this example before, and I'm going to keep on using it, especially in the West, in America, in our world. Our hearts, as it relates to stuff, needs to be checked. There's a pastor in Manhattan who served for 25 years amongst some of the elite of banking and industry who said that he could not recall a single instance that he had been confessed, things that people had confessed to him, countless maladies of soul, the kind of stuff where you have to have a, you know, in a car they have like a, one of those handles, you know what I mean? Like, oh no, I don't get, I think sometimes in counseling, I want to attach one of those to my chair, because I don't want to, be, I, don't, I, don't, I can't be flappable, you know, I need to be unflappable. So sometimes you have to just grab and listen, you listen to what's affecting people and how they've been hurt or how they're hurting others, and it can be shocking. So this pastor, I'm sure, has heard everything over a couple of decades, but what he said is, I don't remember a single time when it's ever been confessed to me that I am being overwhelmed by greed and my desire to get more and more than others and to compare myself based on my stuff. In Manhattan, this is not a common confession, because I believe that in our world we are often taught that this is a good status. So it doesn't mean get rid of all the stuff. It does mean consistently check our hearts. And leadership in the church should not be there for money. The home is in view as well. That a leader in the church should have a consistent management of their home, must manage his own household well, keeping children submissive. If someone doesn't know how to manage household, how will he care for God's church? This does not, I believe, mean that we need to expect or demand some kind of spiritual fruitfulness or perfect faithfulness from children of those who are in leadership, but it does mean that the kind of gentleness, the kind of self-mastery, the kind of, of leadership that's offered in a home should bring about the kind of respect and the desire to follow that we would long for in the church. Any man who desires for those to people to follow in the church who cannot even get their own family to consider their leadership worth following needs to take a step back. I think that's the concept here of the principle. He goes on and says that no one should be a leader in the church who is a recent convert Puff, they could be puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. This indicates, of course, that seasoning, that the Spirit of God needs to move in someone over the course of time, and that these things should be demonstrated, not aspirational. And in many ways, what our desire is, is for us to affirm people who are already functioning as elders, rather than to stir people up to pretend or to want to be one someday in the future. Spiritual, spiritual maturity. Because it's funny that Paul, who tells Timothy, don't let people look down on the youth, that same Paul here essentially implies, you know how young people are so conceited. 
And it is a step toward maturity for a young person to realize both those things. One, God's Spirit is at work in me and I should not be ashamed of my youth. And two, I'm a young person so I don't really know what I don't know and I can often be proud and conceited. And I think that Paul says we should be looking for that kind of spiritual maturity in leaders. Finally, what I would just call reputation. I love that Paul indicates that a requirement for leadership in a church is to consider outsiders. What do others think? This means that our witness to the world matters to Paul. And the way that we interact in our businesses and the way that we treat the people around us and the kind of neighbors we are and the kind of citizens we are matters to God and should matter to us as his people. Well, this list has been, has been long. One thing to say about it as we close. I would say let's not this be a list that is limited in the sense that it is not limited merely to someone aspiring to eldership, but is a pretty good list to say what should maturity look like in me. Second, let's not let it be limited in the sense that it is a legalistic list that we hold one another accountable to and say to ourselves, as long as I've checked the box, everything is fine. But rather, what we should realize is a list like this simply points us to a kind of longing for a leadership that we've all been designed for and ultimately a kind of leadership that can only be offered to us in Jesus. All of us will fail in these areas. I have the microphone. I hope that sometimes I can use this microphone to tell you the times that I didn't get it right to ask forgiveness, to confess. And that in those moments when I do that, that this list is not a, a list that's a checkbox kind of thing, but rather we can all say, isn't it wonderful that we have a Savior who fits these things perfectly for us? Let's pray. God, I ask that you'd help us, help us to trust you, uh, we feel and we know the reality of sin in this world and in us. So protect us and care for us. And I pray, God, that ultimately you would give us hope that you will return. You're the chief shepherd. You're going to care for our souls. We commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.